Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. So, Katie, as you're gnawing on your almond butter, we're here. I'm having pretzels with almond butter because you wouldn't share your sandwich on the train. Not that I'm going to hold that against you, I Ryan. offered both sandwiches, to be clear. <laughs> but anyway, we're here on the north side of Capitol Hill, where an impromptu rally has begun with a bunch of Democratic senators protesting the health care bill that the Republicans are trying to pass through the Senate. And they voted to discuss the health care bill, in they essence, on right? a motion to proceed, which means that they can commence debate. And these oh, are so the— you're so formal, Brian. They voted so they can discuss the bill. They voted to start talking. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't overlook. This is the one-year anniversary of our podcast, Katie. Oh, happy anniversary. Happy I anniversary didn't know that, Brian. to you, too. And we're back where it all started, on Capitol Hill. That's right. One of our first podcasts was with Senator Al Franken, and we walked around the— halls of Congress and talk to folks. And this was, of course, before the election. Yes, this was and in a now, previous universe. And here we universe. are, six months into the Donald Trump presidency, with a lot of Democrats standing in front of the Capitol and basically talking about the need to preserve the Affordable Care Act. And we spoke to a lot of people who are gathered here, mostly against what the Republicans are trying to do, but one or two Trump supporters as well. We did hear from a lot of people who are extremely upset. For many of these people, it's a matter of life and death, and especially for those who have children with disabilities who rely on Medicaid for their care. Um, there were a lot of very emotional people. Let's listen to what some of them had to say. I have a son with Down syndrome. I'm going to cry. And his future depends on Medicaid. With these cuts, it's really hard to see how he'll live independently and work. And that's why all, so many of us are here today, people with disabilities who rely on Medicaid simply to live. Do you think this is going to make a difference to have people come out like this? Definitely, because this, this cuts across party lines. Um, you know, disability doesn't discriminate. There's millions of families with a member who relies on Medicaid because of a disability or an aging parent. I also have two of those. So, you know, this is a real crisis for a lot of people in this country. 
A lot of these people are here worried about what these changes will mean specifically to their disabled kids. Tell me how you're feeling about the whole debate. I don't care. You don't care? I don't care. About the debate or about them? Um, I'm just trying to just say I don't care. Whatever the president wants, I'm for. So I would say I'm for repeal and replace, and I'm not particularly concerned about how they replace it. You know, the the Congressional Budget Office, as I'm sure you probably have heard, estimates anywhere from 20 to 32 million people will lose their health care if Obamacare is repealed. And I'm curious how you feel about that. Yeah, that would be real sad. That would be sad. But it's not enough for you to speak out against the president or this pending legislation? No. What medical conditions do you have? I have cerebral palsy, and I just require... Um, in-home care, people to get me out of bed, help me do the things that everybody does to get ready for the day. And if services get cut with this health care bill, um, I would wind up in a nursing home. Our services like mine would be the first to go. You walked all the way here to Washington? Almost 400 miles, yeah. Wow. To get them to hear her voice. Yes, Tell me voice. about Lauren and, and why you're here representing her. Well, she can't talk. How she old can't is walk. Lauren? Nine years old. She'll never speak. She can't, uh, she can't stand up. So I walk for her because she can't walk. And I stood up for her because she can't stand. And I speak for her because she can't speak. They need to leave children like her out of politics. This is not a political issue. This is humanitarian. This is his life. This is a human life. It has nothing to do with a Republican or a Democrat or a left or a right or conservative or liberal. This is life. Hi, Lauren. Of course, we're here, Brian, though, to sit down and talk with Cory Booker. Uh, he's here at this rally. He's actually still emceeing the event on the steps in front of the Capitol here. And apparently can't stop talking. <laughs> that was just an editorial observation. So it's delayed our interview slightly. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing from uh, Senator Booker about all kinds of things, what's happening here in Washington, in the country, his views on this health care legislation, and of Russia, course, President Trump. Yeah, and his presidential aspirations. Many people have seen him as a rising star, so we'll hear what he has to say about that. Although, Katie, you can't swing your purse where we are right now without hitting a potential Democratic presidential candidate. I think I've seen a half dozen of them in the last 20 minutes. That's true. Here is Senator Cory Booker. Welcome to our podcast, and what a day here in Washington, D.C. Can I just say for a second, you and I have been friends for a long time. I feel I feel at a disadvantage when I'm being interviewed by you because I feel so comfortable with you. I might just be telling all. Well, if you want to break some news and announce <laughs> your candidacy for 2020, feel free. I will announce I am, I am running in 2020 for re-election. <laughs> Does New Jersey law permit you to run for both? Uh, I don't even know. <laughs> so, good question, Brian. That is a good, that is an interesting question. I'm sure you're going to figure out the answer uh, to that question pretty soon. You two are very mischievous. Uh-huh. We are, and, and Brian is very prepared. Is he so really? warning, Senator. But before he was we... pulling stuff out of my bio in the elevator. I know. And I'm just he like, knows... how did he know my favorite breakfast cereal is Captain Crunch with Crunch Berries? How did and you know that? And that you drink Diet Mountain Dew, <laughs> even though your girlfriend tells you not to. Well, before we talk more about you and and your background. It is a, it is a day, eventful day. In yeah, let's talk about from your perspective. Uh, how do you process what just transpired? It, it is so unconscionable for 
And and I think for those of you who don't know, John McCain gave a very dramatic speak in the Senate after he voted to proceed to a bill when he didn't even know what was in the bill. I mean, this whole process from this very beginning is a betrayal of every Senate tradition, every Senate custom. Uh, it's even a betrayal for all those people who think Obamacare was just shoved through. Obamacare had hundreds of bipartisan meetings, uh, committee hearings, hundreds of witnesses. It actually was amended multiple times by the Republicans. Republican but it, it did pass with nary a Republican vote. Absolutely. But there was a process that was akin to what the Senate's supposed to do, where lots of people are invited in. As John McCain himself said, this was a process that was done in secrecy, behind closed doors, just a handful of Republicans, no hearings, no witnesses, no input. It was roundly condemned by nonpartisan, not bipartisan, but nonpartisan groups. Like the, American, the AMA? The American Medical Association, American Hospital Association, American Cancer Society. I mean, everybody who we think of as beyond politics in the medical and healthcare industry world uh, condemned this bill. The AARP. And so then suddenly, literally, the people are being interviewed uh, in, the, in the days before this, uh, Republicans and saying, I don't know what's in this bill. And they just voted to proceed to a bill that they don't even know what's in it. And that's what's unconscionable to me, that this is what has just transpired in the United States Senate. But what uh, didn't they basically say, and didn't John McCain say in his speech, Senator, that we need to discuss this, we need to consider it? And as a result, isn't it possible that the ultimate final bill could look very different than the one that they've Just presented? proceeded to, yes. Well, he actually went even further, which, again— he said was, he wouldn't vote for it, He right? wouldn't vote for it. In its it, current incarnation. In its current incarnation, unless it changed quite a bit. But he, like others, uh, I'm glad I've expressed skepticism about voting for a bill that gave massive tax breaks to the wealthiest amongst us, savage Medicare to the tune of 10 to 15 million Americans, drove up costs for older Americans, undermined— uh, access to Medicaid for people in extended care. There's a lot of parts of this bill that were hard to stomach for House members who were hoping Republicans over here would change it. But I haven't seen a change in which Mitch McConnell could hold together the disparate members of his co coalition, from the Rand Pauls and Mike Lees Susan to the Susan Collins and um, Senator Murkowski from, from Alaska. But, of course, he held the coalition together today. I don't they know what passed the motion to proceed. And yes. so the, a lot of Democrats believe that these complaints, these criticisms among Republicans ring hollow because ultimately their votes are different than their statements. Absolutely. Well, let's go to the president. I mean, the president, if you just take him on what he said, I won't cut Medicaid, I won't cut Medicare, I'm going to provide health care that gives greater access, that is more affordable. And I think the exact word he used was terrific. Health care is going to be terrific. Well, this bill, on, account of, on, 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 a, on an unqualified manner, CBO, as well as many other outside experts have said this will make health care more expensive for the average American. It will restrict access for tens of millions of Americans, and it will drive down the quality of the care that, that many Americans have access to. So this is nothing like what people have been saying. Where we should be, and even what John McCain said today is, we should all take a breather. What did uh, the Affordable Care Act do that we like? Most Americans love the pre-existing conditions pr uh, preserving. Most Americans like the Medicaid expansion. Obviously, some governors didn't do it. Um, most Americans like a lot of aspects, parity between mental health care and so-called physical health care. There's a lot in this bill that people liked. And so let's hold the line on those things and try to improve the things that 
are somewhat problematic. It's problematic, for example, that in the healthcare exchanges, a small percentage of people weren't getting subsidies and more. Well, are you hopeful then that there will be uh, some kind of compromise going on as things move forward? Or do you think that now Republicans have been emboldened by this motion to proceed or whatever you call it? So the Senate doesn't give me hope. <laughs> what gives me hope is what the American people have been doing. Incredible outpourings of protests from people on both sides of the political aisle cramming into people's uh, town hall meetings, demanding that they walk away from a bill that would hurt them and their families. This is the the week, I would say, that people who have to have to speak up again and let let folks know there'll be consequences if they vote on such a disastrous bill that will hurt American families of all backgrounds, all geographies, all races, all parties. Now, Democrats have spoken in very general terms about fixing Obamacare. Your position is sort of mend it, don't end it. But what specific improvements or changes do you think should be made? Well, look, I'm one of those Americans that believes that we need to have a, a different philosophy of healthcare needs to be made real in legislation, which is that healthcare is a right. That we need to have a, a nation in which everyone is covered, in which everyone has affordable and quality health care. That should be the end that we should express. Now, I believe there's lots of avenues to get there. Should there be a single-payer system? Well, that's what I'm saying. Medicare for all. We we almost, we were one vote shy. I say we, I wasn't in the Senate then, when the Affordable Care Act passed of extending Medicare down to people age 50. I believe that would have been the small end of the wedge. I believe at the end, other end of that would have been people saying, wow, it's working. Medicare is working for... Now, for people all the way down to 50, let's expand it for everybody. So I think the Medicare for All idea is a really good idea. Public options are a really good idea. But I do, I'm do. i a big believer that the way we're trying to go about this is actually giving lots of profits uh, to private interests that, that, uh, uh, that are taking money out of the healthcare system uh, and adding great expense to it. But in the meantime, I'm also a realist, as John uh, McCain said today, that you know, given where we are right now with Democrats in the minority and Republicans in the majority, Republicans controlling two houses of Congress and the White House, that we're going to have to try to do what you said, mend Obamacare, don't end it, make it better, and do some incremental changes before we see, unless we see Congress change in the 2018 election. But that doesn't seem very desirable politically, does it? I mean, they, the the president and many of these people ran on the platform of getting rid of Obamacare. Obamacare, repealing Obamacare, I think they're not going to want the appearance of mending, not ending, because it will still be Obamacare. So this is the thing that makes is almost right? laughable Am I to right, me. Though? Well, no, I don't think I don't think you're right because here's a president we have found can lie to the American public, it, it can have Fox News repeating everything that they're saying. You don't think he could have said, "I'm bringing in Trump Care." And we're going to do this and this and this. But the real bill would have just amended it. He could have called it anything he want. Here's one of the best carnival barkers I've ever seen in American politics who could tell people that he was transforming health care. And really what he did was keep everything that people liked and made things better. He could have done it that way in a bipartisan way. Here's a president that has missed opportunity after opportunity to be who he said he was going to be the great deal maker. This is a guy who had a wide opportunity to be a unifying force in this country, to bring people together, to deal with our major issues, but he has completely botched it. 
And instead, he's appealing to a very narrow base uh, with outrageous demonization and demagoguery, uh, the kind of things that are hurting America. And well, given you, his campaign, are you really surprised? I'm disappointed. Uh, his campaign was outraged me. I mean, I, I, I was so confident he was going to lose because I did not believe anybody can ascend to the White House in this day and age by dem- demeaning and degrading other Americans, whether it's Mexicans, Muslims, uh, people in inner cities, uh, even the way he talked about African Americans, all of these things, uh, 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 not to mention women. Um, I didn't think that was possible. But hey, I was wrong. And I think a lot of Democrats were wrong because they didn't understand the level of pain that people were going through and then how uh, uh, Donald Trump was finding a way to talk to that pain um, in ways that Democratic leaders were not. And so here we are in this condition right now. I just am curious in terms of this health care legislation, is this going to come back to bite Republicans in the butt in 2018 if they, in fact, support a bill that leaves many people uninsured? I I certainly hope so. I mean, are you guys going to really make hay with this? Listen, if you hurt my neighborhood, my community, I, I live in Newark, New Jersey. I live in the Central Ward. Uh, uh, the median income in my neighborhood is $14,000 uh, uh, per household. And when I walk around my community, people are really worried and really afraid. And this bill that they just proceeded to, which we don't really know what's in, but if we listen to the CBO and their past versions, this bill will devastate communities like mine, rural communities, uh, cities across this country, uh, people with uh, disabilities. I mean, it's a devastating bill. So will I politically say, if you guys do this, you should suffer the consequences at the polls? Heck yeah, I'm, I'm, I hope that happens. But I got hours now, and I'm going to do everything I can to fight to prevent that from happening, because I'm not looking for political advantage. I'm looking for helping people, and we should stop this bill uh, um, from happening. What do you make of the argument that just as the Republicans have moved too far to the right, Democrats have gone off the left side of the cliff? Because How so? I mean, what, what, in well, what ways? Well, I think on trade, you could make the argument that they've abandoned the Trans-Pacific Partnership, buying a bunch of arguments that aren't really legitimate about what it would have done to American workers, when really it's automation far more than trade that have cost jobs. On single payer, my home state of California, which has Democratic supermajorities, tried to pass single payer, and it didn't work because the cost of it was more than the whole state budget, and there was no answer for how it could be affordable. Um, And some of the rhetoric, uh, this is not my opinion, but the opinion of many independent analysts, is us versus them, but the them isn't a Muslim or a Mexican, it's a billionaire or a banker. Uh, or somebody in one of the industries like prescription drugs or healthcare that Democrats have decided are not good for America. So I'm I'm a former mayor, and um, you know I, I think the Wall Street Journal said I was the 21st person in American history to go straight from being a mayor to being a United States senator. I had to fix stuff. Um, there, I couldn't use philosophy, as Fiorello Laguardia said. There's no Republican or Democratic way to fix a pothole. You just got to fix it, and and that's the way I view the country right now. And I, I I've seen. I've seen Trump trash trade deals as much as you see people on, on either side of the aisle doing it. I don't think my party in a very pragmatic way is going off the rails in some way. Uh, uh, I don't want to use the spectrums of left and right because I'm not even sure what is left, what is right anymore. I think that, that what, we, what the core of my party is saying are pragmatic things that in a balance sheet analysis, um, which is what I had to use every day as a mayor, that net-net they create wealth, they create growth, um, they create opportunity. And I'll just give some things that people might want to characterize as left. Like let's take something like 
funding housing. Well, Seattle uh, did a study, a great organization called Plymouth Housing Group out there said, what is more expensive, supportive housing uh, for people with special needs and mental health issues or keeping them on the streets? They actually found out they saved a million dollars to taxpayers by taking people off the streets and putting them in supportive housing. Why? Well, people who ran cities know this. They end up in our emergency rooms, end up in our jails. It's more expensive to do the morally unsound thing. Let's use another example. Why is it that all of our competitors have paid family leave and universal pre school. Because they know when you invest in children, it is in a global knowledge-based environment, it, it, it is the most valuable natural resource a country has. It's no longer coal or gas or oil. It's the genius of your children, and you've got to put an environment to cultivate that. So I can show you all the things that are the core base of the Democratic Party that appeal to people from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren all the way to Mark Warner uh, and, and Joe Manchin. Things that we believe in, like raising the minimum wage. We now have data that looks at places like Seattle and other places that shows that you don't crush small businesses when but you I do thought, that. But I thought, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that it really did cause a lot of people to lose their jobs in Seattle, according to a study, that a lot of businesses had to fire people when they raised the minimum wage. Right. So I saw Am that. I, it was that on Fox News or something? Exactly. <laughs> no, there's been some data that's come out that's been highly disputed about the impact of minimum wage. But let's pull back even from Seattle. There's so much study about places that raise the minimum wage, including New Jersey, that raises the minimum wage um, did not affect uh, business growth. And in fact, the best evidence for that is that when the minimum wage was established in the 1960s, in real dollars, it's much higher than it is now. If you just had kept up with inflation, it would be over $15 an hour. So if it was undermining growth back then, um, um, it wasn't. In fact, those years, 60s, 70s, were some of the greatest expansions of the middle class we've ever seen. So, so I just want to. I just believe that that forget Democrat or Republican, investing in children, investing in seniors, investing in the poor. Uh, we've got to be a nation like our past, like in the '40s and the '50s and the '60s and the '70s that invested in Americans and invested in America, education, infrastructure, science and research and development. All those things that this generation of Republicans have turned our government away from, and other nations, including immigration, by the way. Other nations, Canada, Germany, Japan, what are they saying? Oh, my God, look what America is turning away from its past. Well, we're going to out-America you. We're going to invest in our infrastructure more than you are, except for building prisons. We're going to invest in education more than you are. We're going to invest in immigration. What do they have out in Silicon Valley? They say, hey, can't get your H-1B visa? Come to Canada. We want you. Because college presidents come to me and say, we're graduating people in degrees I can't even spell, microimmunology, biology, whatever it is. And as soon as they finish their student visa, the brightest minds on the planet Earth, we kick them out of our country. So we've got to get back to doing what actually worked in America to build out the middle class, to close the race gap, to give more people avenues out, social mobility, out of poverty into the middle class that other countries are now doing better than us. We need to get back to being better at being America than other people are. Why do you think Hillary Clinton was unsuccessful prosecuting the argument that you just made? And why do you think that it seems... I think there was another survey I read recently. I read so much, sometimes you can't even remember what you read and where, that said people still don't know what Democrats stand for. Wasn't there a survey? There was a, a poll. That's poll not recently. fake news. Yeah. Yes. So they're, <laughs> trying to, they're trying to fill in that gap with the agenda you announced this week. But, yes. But why have Democrats failed to make this case that you're clearly so impassioned about. Well, look, I, I think that we need to get to back to understanding as a country, all of us, that we have a common pain 
and we need to get back to a common national purpose. And, and for some reason, we don't feel like we have a common pain anymore. I've visited from the rural areas uh, uh, that are predominantly white and poor in my state to the to the minority areas, uh, uh, inner city areas are predominantly black, Latino, and poor. And the struggles people are having are so much the same, whether it's uh, uh, trying to incarcerate yourself out of a drug problem and you're seeing people getting arrested at outrageous rates not getting drug treatment, to not having schools that are providing the kind of pathways to middle-class jobs that we need. We have a common pain, but we haven't talked about a common purpose. Yeah, but there's a lot of evidence that Donald Trump won not because of economic pain, but because of cultural identification and polarization. Many of his voters were not economically struggling or were economically better off than they were when they voted four years ago for Barack Obama. So if it's just about Democrats providing a, a stronger economic message, um, well, I don't is know. that I actually sufficient? Well, I talked to Neera Tandon from the – who's an extraordinary leader of the Center for American Progress today. And a very close aide to Hillary Clinton. Yes. And she was <laughs> saying to me that she was looking at a map of Clinton voters versus um, Trump voters and, he's, and, and saw that you had these interesting um, realities where you saw a lot of these urban areas where – are starting to grow again. I mean, Newark, New Jersey, where I was mayor, first time, greatest economic development period since the 1960s. Um, you see population growth. My first time since the 1960s, our population is growing. You're seeing a lot of these urban areas that are starting to see economic growth and opportunity. Uh, you're seeing a lot of folks uh, supporting Secretary Clinton where she won. You're seeing a lot of the other areas that are not, that are losing factories. And I agree with you, more because of the microchip than Mexicans, um, but are starting to see uh, losses, coal mining towns, a lot of people that are suffering economically, and nobody is showing them that this is an inclusive vision for America, um, that Donald Trump was able to come in there and exploit that pain and actually say, it's not your fault, it's the Mexicans' fault. It's not your fault, it's the Muslims' fault. It's not your fault. It's these crazy left-wing people who are serving the elites and really sold them this idea that we don't have a better economic plan. Where I know fundamentally, if you are struggling in a rural town, which party is fighting for the earned income tax credit? Which party is fighting for the raising your minimum wage? Which party wants to fight against more tax breaks for the wealthiest of people and more opportunity for you and your schools and your community colleges so you can afford uh, education or training. That's the Democratic Party. But Donald Trump was such a good carnival barker that he strolled on in to places where they, people voted for Obama twice and really sell to them this us versus them. Anytime a leader tries to divide this country against itself, we should reject that leader. Anytime a leader tries to say we're all in this together, we need each other, we have one common destiny, that's the leader I want to follow. Unfortunately, Donald Trump played the divide and conquer, and he was able to win the presidency. And he's still trying to govern that way, dividing and conquering, but he's dividing this the, the, the Senate, he's dividing the House, and what's happening is America's uh, getting the raw deal. Do you think Bernie Sanders ever plays divide and conquer politics? Look, I think that uh, Senator Sanders provided a vision for this country on policy that was bold and visionary to say, hey, we need to be a nation that educates again and pointing out the realities of how expensive it is to go to college, I, I, something that's really, I think, very attractive to me. And so he painted in broad strokes, bold strokes that captured the imagination of a lot of Americans. And so did he vilify this us versus them, wealthy elites and what have you? I'm a person that said that, that my style of politics is I'm not going to demonize anybody. I'm not saying that, that uh, Bernie Sanders did, but I am going to point things out like the ridiculousness 
status of carried interest, for crying out loud. I mean, you got to be kidding me. Anybody who's benefiting from that massive tax loophole, while there are people in inner cities that are struggling with environmental desolation because we can't fund cleanup, uh, uh, Superfund cleanup sites, I mean, dear God, give up your carried interest so that we can clean up the most toxic environments that are poisoning our children. That's inexcusable to me for people to be able to benefit in ways through the tax code that are hurting other people. Now, I'm not demonizing those people, uh, but I'm calling out uh, things that our, our nation is doing that is hurting people. It's time to take a quick break. When we return, more with Senator Cory Booker right after this. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. And now back with Senator Cory Booker. 
I think for a lot of people, you're probably more famous than well-known. Okay. And so we want to give people a better <laughs> sense of, of who you actually are, where you come from. He yeah. grew up in a small town in New Jersey. <laughs> how does the His movie parents the... were two of the first black executives at IBM. <laughs> well, how, does it, how does the movie The Jerks start? <laughs> I was born a poor black child with no rhythm. <laughs> and that was Steve Martin. That was Steve Martin, the jerk. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad you know that. I, I make these jokes now in front of uh, millennial audiences, and they give me blank faces. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm actually an idiot. Year old man, oh, you're yeah. Right. yeah, in yeah. a in a thirty five year old. It's all the body. Botox. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Thirty five year old body. That's the nicest thing anybody's ever yeah. said yeah. to me. But it's talk talk a little bit about your childhood, Corey, for Senator Booker, for people who are listening, because um, you've had such a fascinating life. And paint uh, what life was like in a mostly white New Jersey suburb called Harrington Park. Well, I think the the great drama of my life happened when I was only a full months old, which is to be born to two black parents who really struggled um, and are products of a revolution in this country. They're products of a civil rights revolution and rode that wave of the struggles of so many people who opened up doors, including them, that opened up doors for them that were unheard of in the black community. My father, born poor to a single mother, who used to say, son, I can I couldn't afford to be poor. I was just po, P-O. I couldn't afford the other two letters. Um, this is my, my dad's childhood seemed to get worse the older he got. But the truth is he Everybody. grew up But my dad did grow up in a segregated town in the mountains of North Carolina to a mother who couldn't ultimately take care of him and was taken in by a family in the community, raised in the black church, who put money together in a collection plate to try to get him off to a historically black college where he landed in the midst of the civil rights movement. The sit-in movement started right there in North Carolina. And next thing you know, he's watching the country change, rushing with his friends uh, to join up with people of all backgrounds to fight to tear down these roles of segregation. At that time after college, he lands in Washington, D.C., where we're sitting. And again, right place, right time, right education. It was activists in the Urban League and other places that started putting pressure on companies or working with companies to hire their first ever blacks in certain jobs. So my dad becomes the first black person hired by IBM in the Virginia area as a salesman. And then you put qualified people. I don't care if they're if they're gay, if they're people with disabilities, you give qualified people an opportunity, they thrive. And next thing you know, my dad is just their top 5% of global salesmen gets a promotion up to Manhattan. And he will tell you at that point in his life, in his uh, late 20s, he, he was living a life beyond his dreams um, of a small kid in a, in a poor town. And so but he, your mom worked for IBM My mom, well. the same story. I mean, really so similar. Uh, she actually had two parents that uh, my grandfather was a, a UAW, one of their first early black um, uh, uh, union workers and was able to provide uh, my mom with even a little bit more stability than my dad had. And my grandmother and grandfather raised my mom and sent her off to Fisk University, a great uh, HBCU in, in, in Memphis, Tennessee. And she herself moved to uh, D.C., started working in their public schools as a speech pathologist, and then also became one of IBM's early black executives. And so here you have these two folks uh, products of the civil rights movement, products of historically black colleges, all these interventions that tried to create a more equal society. And then they try to move into Harrington Park, New Jersey, this incredible town which I would grow up in, but they were denied houses in this area of Bergen County. So again, activism had to try to step in. And again, you know, with the sting operation, these incredible lawyers in the Fair Housing Council and activists. They let my parents go look at a house, and then they would send a white couple to look at my house, the house afterwards. My parents loved this house. They were told it was sold. The white couple found the house, found it was for sale, put a bid on the house for my parents. The bid was accepted, papers drawn up, and on the day of the closing, they surprised the real estate agent. (laughs) 
And surprise! Surprise! <laughs> and they, but but amazingly, when they the real estate agent, incredible. yeah, but the real estate agent didn't capitulate. He didn't just say you got me. Uh, um, he actually got up and punched my dad's lawyer in the face and sigged a dog on my dad. And after this big melee in this office, uh, lawyers got involved. The whole thing, and eventually they relented, and we bought this house and we moved in. And so my father used to tease us and call us the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. And so imagine just this. By the time I'm 18 years old, they spent 18 years lecturing my brother and I, do not forget where you came from. Do not forget the struggle that got you here. You drink deeply from wells of freedom, liberty, and opportunity that you didn't dig. My dad's smart remark to me would always be, boy, don't you dare walk around this house like you hit a triple. You were born on third base. And you can't pay back all those people that fought for you, struggled for you, but you're damn well going to pay it forward uh, by finding a way of being a service. And my dad was impatient. You know, who would have thought his son, I, I went to Stanford University, and, and I always have to confess, I got in because of a 4.0 and 1,600, 4.0 yards per carry, 1,600 receiving yards. <laughs> I was Something a, tells, tells me you've used that I, I use it all the time to let people know that I got in because I was got a, me. I got Because yeah, <laughs> I was a damn good football player, or at least a, a, a above well, average you, high school you, football you, player. You, you were smart, too. You were a Rhodes Scholar. I, you went on to Yale Law School. Yeah, but my, so, but my dad, as I'm doing all that stuff, he's like, boy, you got more degrees in the month of July, but you ain't hot. When are you going <laughs> to do something for this country? You, 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 were, you were given all this privilege and all this opportunity to join the fight because you won't be called to you know, ride uh, buses on Freedom Rides, uh, to march for, uh, to Selma, to register people to vote. And folks were dying, Goodman, Cheney, Schwarner in the 60s. But all those people put that effort out for you. What are you going to do to prove worthy? So my brother and I, who were programmed from an early age to feel this sort of outrageous gratitude to this country, um, but also this understanding as my father, who who raised us in the black church, who uh, uh, always kept us close to the black community, you know, family in Newark, you name it, wanted to point out to my brother and I that there are people struggling outrageous uh, injustices not of their own making, and and you need to be just as committed to dealing with those injustices as your as your ancestors, your parents, your grandparents, and their generation were committed to to fighting injustices that that existed then. So you mentioned Newark. I think a lot of people would be surprised to know that in your last year at Yale Law School, you commuted two hours to and from Newark in order to go to classes, which is a pretty rare thing to do. You didn't grow up in Newark. Your parents didn't live in Newark. What what connected you to Newark, and why did you decide to make your life there? Well, gosh, by the time I was in law school, I had, um, from the time I was 18 to graduating law school at 27, that, like, decade was all about cities for me. And everywhere I would go, I just wanted to be a part of uh, cities and uh, not only the, the urban struggle, but also the urban imagination and, and trying to create better things. And so I had uh, some family in the way you call your parents, close friends, aunts and uncles, who lived in Newark, who knew Newark, and I'd grown up sort of coming back and forth there. And I just felt connected to this community and decided that that's where I was going to move. And my dream was to be Jeffrey Canada. He was my hero coming out of law school, who was the head of something called the Harlem Children's Zone. And if you read his book, Fist, Stick, Knife, Gun, you see that he looked for the toughest neighborhood he could find and moved into that neighborhood. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to do the same thing. You I'm, lived in public housing. I, I moved into... Uh, on Martin Luther King Boulevard, the southern part of that street in Newark, um, was was um, greeted with my stuff being stolen out of my car when I was moving into this small place. But I met heroes. I met, I mean, some of the still some of the most moving uh, 
and and I was taking out my BA from Stanford, but my PhD on the streets of Newark. I read that. I mean, if you you had to think of one person who really taught you something, I I was intrigued by that statement. Who was the best teacher you had? Well, there? I had incredible professors. In the probably, no, I don't mean professors. I mean no, people I mean, in the public they were housing. professors. They were street professors. These oh. were professors of 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 the neighborhood. So Miss Virginia Jones, who was a tenant president of the the, the buildings that I would move into, this these tough projects. Uh, whose son was murdered in the lobby of the building in which I lived in the 80s. Um, she, you know, she caught me right when I landed in Newark from Yale, put me in my place real quick. She says, like, are you going to help me? She goes, describe this neighborhood. I still remember she, this moment where she says, I'm like, what? She goes, describe the neighborhood. And I described it like it was at a crack house that I lived right next to. It had these, uh, uh, the projects. I described it sort of a tough view of the neighborhood, like anybody would probably see with their own eyes. And she just said, you know, you can never help me then. Uh, and I go, why? She goes, because the world you see outside of you is always a reflection of what you have inside of you. And if you're one of these people who only sees problems and darkness and despair, that's all there's ever going to be. But if you're one of these stubborn people who every time you open your eyes, you see hope, you see opportunity, you see love, you see the face of God, then you can be someone that helps me. And I began just by sitting in her apartment and watching people line up at the door at different times to come in for help, whether they needed their son needed a job or they were having difficulty meeting the rent uh, or the worst slumlord I had ever sort of experienced, um, which we eventually took on and eventually got convicted in federal court. But she was this amazing person who lived her life to serve others. And she was fierce. I mean, she was tough. I mean, she was a five feet and a smidgen tall, but intimidated me at six foot three. Um, and, uh, you know, she Do you stay in touch with her? She's passed away now. But did you even? Oh, after? are you kidding me? Uh, um, I couldn't go a day or, or 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 multiple days without her calling me up to bark orders at me, even when I was mayor of the city. And um, look, she she taught me the definition of hope, which was that hope is not doesn't exist in an abstract. Uh, hope is confronting the wretchedness of the world, uh, seeing uh, the depravity. Hope uh, doesn't exist in an abstract. You can't have great hope unless there is great despair. Hope is this active conviction that despair will not have the last word. So yeah, here's this woman. They murder her son in the lobby of the building. She and I were probably the two, two of the highest net worth earners in those buildings. We could have lived anywhere, but she never, ever left. Uh, like Mamie Till, who kept Emmett Till's coffin open, um, she decided that she was going to be an agent of hope, an instrument of hope uh, in a world that desperately needs it. And, and so it was women like her that taught me, and I, I broke a few times in my time in Newark, and I still remember after witnessing a, a horrible time where a young boy died, and I just wanted to give up. I was so angry at the world. And this woman, I'll never forget, uh, it was just her and I in the courtyard of these projects, and I'm this big guy, but she just held me like a little child, and I just broke inside. I I soaked her shirt, just weeping on this woman's shoulder. I was so angry. I get emotional thinking about it right now. And all she did was hold me and say over and over again, stay faithful, stay faithful, stay faithful. And so that, to me, is this message right now, and most Americans— and, and this has been interesting, and I, I, I lost my temper a little bit in a speech I was giving yesterday to a bunch of lawyers about everybody wants to focus on Donald Trump. There's outrageous injustices going on in this world before Donald Trump. You know, people said, oh, Corey, there was 10% drops in African-American votes in places like Michigan and, 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 and Pennsylvania. 
And, and I'm like, it's not just people in rural white communities, it's people in urban black communities who are beginning to lose faith that this government's going to do anything because we're not seeing each other or suffering. I went through Louisiana and and um, Mississippi, excuse me, in Alabama a few weekends ago just to visit places in rural America, uh, Tallahassee, Alabama, Uniontown, Alabama, and and just to bear witness, people packed these churches because they couldn't believe uh, uh, they were they were so grateful that a federal official was coming down and looking at the hell in which they were living because we allowed the worst type of hateful hypocrisy and corporate villainy where these companies locate environmental disasters, whether it's uh, 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 landfills or imagine a place that everybody knows it as Cancer Alley where these petrochemical companies companies are releasing hundreds of times higher rates of carcinogens into the air than other communities. And people are just saying, why won't anybody do something? And why do we accept it? Is it racism? So look, I think racism is something we need to confront and tell the truth about. Why is it when you ask, Harvard did a study, I think it was them that asked Americans to to picture a drug dealer, black and white Americans, 95% say somebody black. Ask the majority of Americans to picture a welfare recipient, and the majority of them will describe somebody that's black. Even the majority, the majority of, are white. Majority of both of those circumstances uh, or plurality are white people. And, and, and so I do think race is this pernicious evil that we don't speak enough because it often puts people in defensive posture as opposed to speaking to it in a way that calls to our compassion or empathy for the truth. And so what your question is, does race complicate and compound this problem? Hell yeah. When you have a criminal justice system, rightfully, as as Michelle Alexander calls, the new Jim Crow, it is is devastating, uh, 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 aggravating uh, racial problems in this country in terms of disparities in outcome, because there's no difference between blacks and whites for using drugs or even dealing drugs. In fact, some studies show that young white uh, folks have young white men have a little bit higher rates, but you and I both know all three of us who went to college campuses. Nobody at Stanford was getting stopped and frisked for using drugs. Uh, um, there was no FBI stings on the local fraternity, and you and I, all of us know. And I don't mean to put you guys and implicate you guys in this, but you know where to get the pot from, the Adderall, the ecstasy. Uh, the, well, the, Brian definitely Brian does. definitely does. Know where to get um, ecstasy? My God. Okay. What do you take me <laughs> yeah, for? Well, well, but but rich and privileged people. We live in a country, as Brian Stevenson says, where you you get a better better sense of justice if you're rich and guilty uh, than if you're poor and innocent. I love Brian Stevenson, he, just he, parenthetically. He's, a, he's like the Mandela of America. Why doesn't he run for president? Because he's doing more important work and making more of a difference than he could. Uh, oh, uh, you don't really believe that. He's making more of a difference than if you were president in the United States? Well, I, I think the reality is, I thought you, I thought I heard it more as like, if, why doesn't he run for the Senate? And oh, oh, clearly okay. he's getting more done than a senator. <laughs> but yeah, if I can blink my eyes and replace the current president with Brian Stevenson, I think that we would be you'd be pleased I'd but be before pleased. we completely lose the thread of your biography I'm sorry we're limited on time so you, you know one thing you are very famous for all these good works the the 10 day hunger strike to draw attention to drug dealing you spent a week subsisting on the budget of a food stamp recipient you you have lived in one of the most crime plagued areas not just in your state but but the country 
And I think for most people, this is all extraordinarily laudable, but the knock on you among some snarky liberals is that these are these are stunts. As I was researching uh, this podcast that Salon wrote, he's done a lot of stunts designed to make people aware of poverty, or at least to make people aware of Cory Booker's awareness of poverty. I'm just curious, what's your reaction when you see something like that? Um, I don't. I mean, look— if people are not criticizing you, you probably aren't doing that much to make change, to make a difference. And, you know, I love my neighborhood. And if people want to say – in fact, I know lots of leaders have decided to go live in the projects for a week or something like that. I've lived in my community for eight years in Brick Towers, and I still live in that same neighborhood right now. Um, I love my neighbors. It's, it's my community. I'm not doing it uh, to bring attention. Uh, I'm doing it because I love my community and, frankly – I'm living my values. I think that we have divided ourselves too much. We put walls up against. Uh, um, so I just love where I live, and I love, uh, and and I am who I am. It's hard to have an eight-year stunt, isn't it? <laughs> yes, or now a twenty-year, twenty years. In fact, when I became mayor, I decided to move into the only time I've moved out of the neighborhood I've lived in. I lived in there uh, eight years before mayor, and I've lived there since uh, I've become the center. This is my community. But I moved, decided to move into the section of the city as mayor where there were the most shootings. Now, what if all of our leaders had to do that? Because what I call the hateful hypocrisy is when you are comfortable because your family and you live in a nice neighborhood. Uh, you're sworn to uphold this constitution, to liberty and justice for all, but, but your family's not on the line. Um, uh, Brian Stevenson talks about the importance of being proximate. Yes. You know, yes. That, that we're all so siloed. The Pope, when he warned his priests, go out and uh, be amongst the people, smell like the people. Um, I just think there's something powerful about leadership that doesn't separate itself, doesn't put itself above, puts itself with. And I swore to myself, in fact, Miss Jones made me. Literally made me. She said, this is when I was elected to city council. She warned me that often we elect people to council and they leave us. And I made a commitment to this amazing woman that I will not leave. I've and so decided, where do I live? I live still in that community. I've decided your campaign song better be me, me, and, me, and Mrs. 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 Jones. I hope people giggle that song. <laughs> we got a thing <laughs> going on. But what do, how do you think that, like, if, if all— I sing it every podcast, so thank you for allowing so me to do that. So you appreciate them very nicely, actually. But I just want to ask a question. What would, what, would a, what would we be doing right now if—about Superfund sites, if every senator like me lived within a mile of a Superfund site? Or about what, healthcare what, what, if what every senator didn't have healthcare. What would we do about violent crime if every senator had to live in the part of their state with the most violent crime? I don't know if any other senator had a shooting on their block this last month or two. What would we be doing about violent crime? What would we be doing uh, about uh, drug addiction if every senator lived across the street? I live across the street from one of Integrity House facility. I've gone and sat with the men and women who sit in a circle of recovery. Uh, I just think that for, I don't care what people say about it. Uh, my entire adult life, I've lived and worked in inner city communities. And over my desk in my office uh, is the map of the central ward of Newark where I live. That's where my career, professional life coming out of law school started. And every decision I make, uh, whether it's battling for uh, um, health care, for prescription drugs, uh, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, whether it's dealing with uh, the criminal justice system, whether it's infrastructure – I, I actually want to use the lens of, of my, the community in which I live in to guide my decisions because I love it when I go home. 
you know, folk don't take me seriously. <laughs> they don't take my title seriously. They take me seriously, but they don't care. Uh, they don't actually they don't care about the politics often, the, the debates and the positioning. What they really care about is, hey, this is what's going on on our street. Or and when I was mayor, it gave me great satisfaction. I got to see. To stand there with people and say, look, we got that park built. We have that new supermarket in town. Uh, we're building some new affordable housing here. And, and as a senator who has to come down to Washington every week, I don't want to be pulled too far away from the urgencies that got me in politics and the responsibility I have to the people. You There was an Oscar-nominated fabulous documentary about your first campaign. Yeah, which is called called, I always advise, fight. if you're going to have a spectacular failure in your life, have a documentary team there to capture it. <laughs> it's a, it's a, <laughs> you capture and Anthony Weiner. Humili- yeah, Ouch. I think I think he comes Ouch. across a little better than Anthony Weiner in his documentary. I will say that's, but you a, that's know, a low bar. You want to know the ignominy, and that's not it. Uh, of the, <laughs> the, 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 the real shame of the documentary is that it, the, the, so my most humiliating loss gets captured in this documentary film, gets nominated for an Oscar, and guess what it loses to in the, in the Academy Awards? I don't know. March of the Dagnab Penguins. Oh, it's like that's It's hard hurt. to compete with a penguin. Uh, and, 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 and Morgan Friedman, for crying out loud, just driving Miss Daisy. Like, he's got the best voice in the world. If he had narrated our film... We probably would. No, it's the old Hollywood ro- rule: you never compete with the animals. Oh, you're the animals because okay. the audience always likes the animals. I thought the rules: you never compete with Morgan Friedman. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true as well. But so you, or you, God, right? Yeah, yeah he is you, God. <laughs> you won and the president. <laughs> you won four years after the campaign yes. that was captured in that film, and probably the thing that got the most national attention was Mark Zuckerberg coming in. Please spend. tell me that that was not the most national attention. I can give you more things that captured it, but that was a big moment. That was a big moment, yes. and he offered to spend $100 million, did in fact spend $100 million to try to turn around Newark schools, which you said would be a model of educational excellence. Yes. And other uh, philanthropists came in with even more money. Yes. How do you assess the results of that experiment? An outrageous success if you just look at the data of the Newark school system. And I got, by the way, he wasn't the only factor contributing to the successes the school system has had. But let's pull back and look at what does the data say about the Newark school system right now? Well, we just recently, not recently, now it's been about a, over a year, we were ranked the number one city in America for beat the odds schools, high poverty, high performance. So you have schools that have taken kids from extraordinarily difficult circumstances to graduate them. Number two is if you're an African-American kid in Newark, which is the majority of our kids, and they tended to be in the, in the worst-performing schools, your chances of going to a high-performing school from the time I was mayor to about now went up 300%. Um, the overall performance in the Newark school system on reading math went up double-digit percentages. Our graduation rate went up uh, uh, double-digit percentages. So – you know, in terms of a school system in a very short period of time, uh, giving parents incredibly high-quality options. In fact, as the studies have shown, better options than most uh, inner-city public schools have. Uh, it's it's been ridiculously successful. We still have work to do, but the supercharged success of our schools, especially that one in- indice, about 300% more likely now if you're black in Newark to go to a high-performing school is pretty dramatic. But Newark charter schools outperform district schools. And I'm just curious why there's so much controversy about charter schools within the Democratic Party, largely because of teachers' unions. Well, I wouldn't say largely because of only teachers' unions. But that's a big factor, wouldn't Absolutely you agree? Absolutely, a big factor. But let's let's try to separate the critics from the criticism. So I will join people in criticizing charter schools if they are endangering public schools, if they are creaming the best students, um, if they are 
are not held to the same standards of performance as traditional district schools. So I always say, let's filter out the the, the critics and just look at really what we want. Like if a, if a charter school moved into a rural area, you got to be kidding me. Like Heidi Heidkamp and uh, Tester, we talk about this all the time. It just wouldn't work and it would endanger the system that's there. Um, um, so, so there are legitimate criticisms in general of charter schools. And that's why in Newark, we try to do things a different way. Creating a one enrollment plan so you're not creaming people. Um, trying to appropriately finance our school system, which is always a battle, especially with a Republican governor, so that you're not in any way creating a lack of equity and funding. Uh, a lot of things I think that you can do in an environment like Newark where charter schools can work, but but charter schools aren't for everywhere, and you have to make sure that they're being held to the same standards. Now, you emphasize public schools, but why shouldn't poor kids have the same opportunity as rich kids to go to a private school if that's the right choice for them? I, again, I, I'm one of those few Democrats that says, I think that we should have a system that doesn't just work for the rich and the wealthy. That's why I've supported things like the White Fellowship in Newark, which so takes— for vouchers? Under the most narrow of circumstances, if your chill child is stopped in a routinely failing school um, and is poor and does not have the ability, I think the public— should be saying to that, this is a crisis of monumental proportion, and the public should do whatever it can to get that child out of that environment. And I believe in what you call whatever you want, but a rescue package for those children. Do I support charter schools and innovation in the right context, in the right environment? As we've seen in Newark, I will fight for them. Do I support rescuing kids that are in dropout factories and things like that with interventions? Absolutely. But at the end of the day, we can never as a country abandon this idea of Great public schools for every child. So there are a lot of issues we want to hit, and we have very limited time in which to do it. But you mentioned mass incarceration earlier. I know you're very passionate about this issue. It's a major problem in this country. And this was supposed to be the one thing that could get done last year on a bipartisan basis. Uh, it failed in I part. I interviewed Senator Booker and Rand Paul about yes. this together. One Talk of my about early an interviews odd in couple. The Senate. Yeah, no, it's one of my <laughs> earliest interviews in the Senate. And it failed in part because of uh, then Senator Jeff Sessions leading the opposition to it. Why didn't that legislation come together, and and what are its prospects now? So first of all, it, it, it as a guy who's now closing in October with my full four years in the Senate. Um, there's no better journey that I've seen so far than me coming into the Senate and hearing Chuck Grassley going to the floor and speaking against the innovations and reforms that I wanted to over time becoming a partner of mine and other Democrats in a very ambitious and progressive bill that actually got out of the Judiciary Committee uh, with bipartisan votes and almost as if it got votes on the floor, it would have gotten 80 plus votes. And so, yeah, as, as older senators or senators who've been here longer put their arm around me and say, look. Sometimes it takes two or three Congresses to get something done. Don't give up on this. And not only haven't I given up, but we're pushing more legislation, legislation focused on women in prison, because folks don't know that about 86% of the women in prison are survivors of sexual trauma, sexual abuse, and we put them in more trauma when we put them in prison. Uh, we focused on marijuana, which you gratefully uh, interviewed uh, Rand Paul and I on. But that coalition has expanded now. More Republicans, more Democrats jumping on to reform uh, marijuana laws. Again, most Americans, the reason why injustice is often fester is because most Americans don't realize it. So we have people that have lost their voting rights for a lifetime. 
One out of five African-Americans in Florida cannot vote because of felony disenfranchisement. And, and many of them were for doing things two of the last three presidents admitted to doing. Remember, Bush and Obama, it wasn't smoking a little bit of marijuana. It was felony drug possession of drugs more serious than, than marijuana. So here we have the, this hypocrisy in our country. Where if you're a privileged kid going to a fancy college, go ahead and experiment all you want. I've sat in this body in Congress listening to colleagues joking about the laws that they broken, broke, but they were privileged people. They didn't have to worry about it. They could flaunt the law. Meanwhile, if you're that 17-year-old kid who's walking home, gets caught with a little bit of drugs, you're done. Because not only do you get arrested, now we stack mandatory minimums. I've had children sit in my office pleading with me about their stories to do something about the fact that the prosecutor said to them, and by the way, we don't have juries and, and, and judges and trials anymore. 98% of our criminal convictions are done by plea bargain. Because if you, Katie, with that 17-year-old kid sitting in my in my and I'm a prosecutor, I can say, look, I'm gonna move you to adult court. I'm gonna stack your charges. You're gonna face 15 years for your nonviolent crimes. Or you can plead guilty now, you can get out. I get a win. You get a felony charge, now you can't get a job, you can't get a Pell Grant, you can't get business licenses, you can't vote. Done. And what does that 17-year-old think now? He probably His public schools probably didn't serve him, doesn't have that great of an education, now he's a criminal charge. What are the likelihood that they're going to recidivate and get, and get back into trouble again? Because we're not empowering them to succeed. That's the system we have right now. It's broken in so many different ways, and it's stacked against poor people, mentally ill people, addicted people, women, people of color. And, and so this is the fight for me, is taking on this system in every single way. I, and I was relentless when I was running for this office. I didn't care if you put me through the wealthiest community in New Jersey or the poorest community in New Jersey. I was talking about this issue, even though it didn't poll. It's one of the top concerns of my, my state. It is one of the biggest cancers on the soul of this country and is costing us so much money. From the time I was in law school to the time I was mayor of the city of Newark, we were building a new prison every 10 days in this country. And so if you don't think this mass incarceration, the fact that we have one out of every four incarcerated people on the planet Earth, the majority of them for nonviolent crimes, if you don't think that's hurting us as Americans uh, with the debt that we have, you're crazy. And it's making us less safe, not more. Let's do our quick lightning round because I know we have to catch a train going back to New York. And you've been so generous with your time. You guys too, were so Corey. generous. I was late because of the protest on That's the Senate okay. floor, That's on, okay. the, on the Senate steps. It's, it's a real treat just to have this conversation. Um, just just quick answers, if you will. Uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> Discuss. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean, what do you make of him and his presidency? Because every day there seems to be a new event that's causing consternation, well, national I, consternation, look, which kind of sounds like constipation. I hate to say it's maybe it's a little bit of both metaf metaf metaphorically. Um, look, I think the thing that offends me the most about this presidency, um, if a Republican won, they would be pushing policies that I fundamentally disagree with. And that would have been a battle uh, royale and, and I would be upset about that. But I think what is making this presidency so difficult for me, for my Republicans in this Senate colleagues, um, is that this guy is so trashing the norms, the dignity, 
uh, of the office as he trashes Americans. I mean, here's a guy that's more upset about Nordstrom's dropping his daughter, tweeting about that, than he is about the Russians invading uh, our, our attacking our elections. Which here. he still doubts. He, he doubts the conclusion of Which 17 is intelligence well, He's kind of said yes and no, and well, he seems Scaramucci, to go back and forth. Scaramucci, the new communications director, or said— Or the mooch, as he's called. Yes. Yes, <laughs> said that he still doubted the conclusion of these agencies. But then that is— what he's doing is continuing to undermine institutions in our country, whether it's the press, attacking the press, our First Amendment ideals every single week, it seems. Um, he is attacking our intelligence agencies. As a, as a candidate, he, he attacked our military. I know more about this than the generals, the guy that was going to have a plan to end ISIS in his first whatever days. The, the, the Russia, when I talked to, first time I sat down with the ambassadors from Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, these are Baltic nations that border the Soviet Union. And they were saying, Oh, Russia. Excuse me, God, flashback. <laughs> uh, uh, You're not um, that old. I'm not that old. <laughs> I'm not that old. Uh, I was still in high school when we had we had the Soviet Union. Um, but they, they border the Russians, and and their warnings to us, almost like the chickens coming home to roost. Like you weren't taking us seriously when we were telling you that the Russians are seeking to undermine Western democracy. And everybody I talked to in Eastern Europe when I was there said, you all need to wake up. This is how the Russians do what they call a hybrid war. Not only is there a physical con conflict, but then they take us on with propaganda, with cyber attacks, trying to get people to lose faith in their in the, in the information they're getting from the press, lose faith in democratic institutions, lose faith in the electoral process itself. And so if anything, the president's rhetoric is complicit in what our, what our adversaries are trying to do, undermine our faith in democracy, weaken our election system, weaken our free press, and weaken the very institutions that he represents as president that include everything from the military to the intelligence but agencies. Mr. Yale uh, Law School, can the president pardon himself, pardon his family, pardon his associates, and fire so, Bob Mueller? So this is this is, and I just wanted to just take one step back on that question because this is why I came down here with a big afro, pulled all my pulled all my hair out. That's a joke. Well, you did a very good job. So, thank this. you very much. <laughs> you should have seen his afro this morning. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> um, I never thought I would be sitting in interviews, and and there would come a day where questions like that would be asked, like with a straight face, like like. The fact that we are sitting here as Americans and wondering if a president can preemptively pardon himself for serious crimes is to me astonishing. So, serious I, crimes if it's proven. He, the, the the question is is can the president preemptively pardon himself and pardon his 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 or not even preemptively pardon himself if it's proven pardon the people in his senior staff. This is a frightening moment for America that we have serious questions like this being asked. It, it was actually frightening to me, all the accusations of collusion. You know, they were denying, people were saying, for me, it was like a lot of political noise. But when I read an email where literally people are saying a foreign government wants to cooperate with your campaign to beat your opponent, and Donald Trump Jr. says, if this is real, I love it. That alone, when that email came forward, I can't tell you what their public statements were, but the conversations around this place were just stunned. 
that you literally have a smoking gun of the intention of Donald Trump's most senior advisors seeking to collude with the Russians to even go to him. That, that email itself should have been turned over. As and an then act they of, all went to the meeting. And they all went to the meeting. But do you think the drip, Talk about drip, a lack drip, of patriotism. Do you think the drip, drip, drip has, in fact, somewhat normalized this? Because it comes so frequently and so often. It uh, seems as if there's a kind of an explosion and then it dissipates. What's and that this song, I've Become Comfortably Numb? Um, no, I, I am not. Uh, no, uh, but I, I don't mean for you, you necessarily. Uh, yes. I just mean for the public at large. Um, do you think at, at some point they're just being – they're so awash in scandal that nothing sticks in well, a so weird way. So this is how I know that's not true. The public at multiple points has stopped bad things from happening more than I have as a senator. So whether it's the independent ethics oversight of the House, that was shut down by public outrage. Version one of the House health care bill, shut down by public outrage. Uh, the version one of the uh, the Muslim ban. I mean, I watched one of my greatest moments as an American was witnessing out at Dulles Airport. All of these people chanting and cheering as Muslim families that weren't even necessarily American citizens, watching people with yarmulkes on showing their true faith and cheering people uh, coming out of that airport. It reminds me of the story from the Bible and the Torah uh, of, of, of Abraham sitting there in pain and watching strangers come, and he runs to them joyously and welcomes them. I mean, that this is us living our values. The Women's March, I sat down in New Jersey recently with four incredible women activists who weren't involved before but have been awoken by this crisis. So I'm seeing the best of America. It's just like Miss Virginia Jones. Hope is a response to despair, and they're not letting despair win. They're showing their patriotism, showing their their power by engaging now like they never have before. We're almost out of time, but we have to ask Corey, don't we, Brian, about running for president? Well, I'm running from the president, we... <laughs> if you haven't heard already. I'm like, out of here. I mean, do you rule out running for president in 2020? So let me tell you a horrible confession. But it's out there in the public already, but, I, but, I, but it's, I've never said it on this a podcast be before. Cute, I know. Yeah, well, look, I was mayor, and I was trying to figure out what to do next. You know, run for re-election for a third term, run for governor, uh, um, run for my life, and get the heck out of politics. And uh, one of my – a guy who has never let reporters be your friend. That's why Katie's such a threat to me. Um, but Tom Moran is one of my favorite journalists in America. And he's just hanging – it's the end, It's always bad at the end of an interview when you're really comfortable. You start joking. He goes, what about Senate? Would you ever run for Senate? And I unfortunately said, if I ever run for Senate, <laughs> please stop me. And I, I invited him to do violence to me um, in a very grotesque way that I regret uh, um, doing and everybody can Google and everybody can unfortunately way Google the way I put yeah. that. Slow my brains out. And it, oh. no, no, it was worse. <laughs> anyway, wow. and it wasn't off the record. Anyway, learned. I didn't say off the record, and he, you know, this is why Tom. I have a love. And you're hate, still friends with him. I have a love hate relationship with him. <laughs> so because of course, what did he roll out when I finally decided to run for Senate, and which I could not have envisioned. Um, he didn't do to you what you suggested he did. He did to you, not though. do to me, but he did expose me yes. for saying such a dramatic thing to never that I would never. Run okay, for enough Senate. preamble. You're filibustering. Uh, so Are you going to run for president? Point, or at not? this point, I cannot see it. <laughs> yes. I'm very intent on trying to uh, earn a re-election in, in New Jersey in 2020 when I am. Up. Oh yeah, I'm sure that's going to be a very tough campaign um, for you um, getting re-elected I, I in New Jersey. Taking it seriously yeah, oh, yeah, in the time of Trump, for granted. But, but, yeah. but, but, taking it for granted. No, in in your quiet moments of self-reflection. Yes. 
do you think about? I try to empty my thoughts when I'm meditating. <laughs> yeah. That's what I do. But, the, but the power of now. Okay, after you're meditating, <laughs> okay. or after you're done meditating. And he's a vegan too, so he's probably just meditating about how much he misses. Well, he meat. does. Yeah, who drink would want a vegan yes. meditator in the White House? For crying <laughs> well, <yeah>. out loud. <laughs> That's are, you, are you still a vegan? I am still a vegan. I'm a lifetime vegan. It's you've done. been a lifetime. Vegan. All right, I don't know. come on. I am we now digress. A all right, all right. We, we digress. digress. So, are there any circumstances under which you would say, you know what? I feel a patriotic duty to to change, to, to work on all these issues in a way that I have so, so much power, I can really, really change things. I will make you a deal right now. I'll make news. If you run for president, I will run as your vice president. Oh, brother. Brian was just like, <laughs> You literally had a physical reaction to that. Oh, they can't be caught by the podcast, but no, you look cautious. Okay, He's not going to answer the question. Can I ask one I more thing? I thought I answered the question. You didn't answer the question. I do not question. see myself running for president. Yeah, okay. Right now. Well, Corey Booker, Senator Booker, thank you so much for giving us so much time and for inviting us into your little hideaway, which is your secret office that <laughs> people have here on Capitol Hill. I'm sorry there is not a full bar here um, <laughs> because I, uh, apparently some of the more senior members they do. do. They're kind of tricked out with the whole bar situation. Yes. But, but, the, but the, um, the Cafe Car of the Acela, I've definitely visited that at times. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to that. Yeah, uh, if we make our train. good enough for lunch, <laughs> yes. good enough yeah, for you, dinner. You guys <laughs> Booker, thank you. Yeah, we run. better get the heck out of Dodge. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you, you both. I appreciate you guys being so patient, too. As usual, we want to thank our intrepid production team, including our producer, Gianna Palmer, our audio engineer, Jared O'Connell. Thanks also to Emily Bina of Katie Couric Media, that behemoth, and Nora <laughs> Ritchie for her production assistance. Allison Bresnick makes things happen for social media, and we thank her for that. And thank you, as always, Mark Phillips, for our theme music. Katie and I are the executive producers of this podcast. And everybody, don't be a stranger. Email us at comments at currentpodcast.com or leave us a voicemail at 929-224-4637. We love getting your messages. Honestly, they truly make our day. You can also find us on social media anytime at all hours of the night when it comes to me. I'm Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram and Katie Couric on Snapchat. I'm also on Facebook and you can find Brian on Twitter at Goldsmith B. Now, if you've listened this far, hopefully you've liked what you've heard. So let the good people at Apple Podcasts know by rating and reviewing our show there so we can keep it alive. Keep hope alive, everybody. (laughs) Please subscribe as well. Anyway, thank you, as always, for listening. Thank you very much. And from somewhere en route from D.C. to New York. Where I just ate a hot dog that's giving me serious acid indigestion. TMI. (laughs) (laughs) Tom's anyone? (laughs) Adios. Bye. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.